It is May 12th. I'm looking at the calendar and that's right. And um, welcome to another episode of The Vegetable Beat. It is a live weekly discussion for vegetable growers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. And we broadcast at this time every Wednesday through September. Um, my name is Ben Whirling of Michigan State University, and I'm your host today. Um, working behind the scenes and making sure things run smoothly is Mike Reinke, our Zoom engineer. And our topic today is pre-season pumpkin tips. We're kind of at the cusp of, of another season, and um, and we have two guests back with us that we're uh, really happy to have. Um, you guys wear two hats. You're both extension educators as well as growers, which I think is a a perspective I really appreciate. Um, so we're happy to have Brad Bergerford of the Ohio State University. Um, I worked in the the, and, <laughs> and, and Nathan Johanine of the University of Illinois. Um, guys, put your questions for Nathan and um, Brad into the Q&A box in Zoom or into the comment section of Facebook Live. Um, we do have pesticide applicator credits available for Michigan um, growers, as well as CCA credits um, for just for live listeners. Put your name and email in the chat or Facebook comments. If you would like to get those, then we'll email you. Um, and with that, I'd, I'd like to get started. So I mentioned that you guys both wear two hats. And I was thinking to kick off what we could do is um, answer this question, take taking both hats out of the closet, putting on one and then the other. And, um, and, and Nathan, maybe I'll ask you first and then ask you, Brad. Um, so Nathan, thinking as both an extension educator and then as a grower and in your own farm, what's, what are some big things on your mind as pumpkin season um, approaches or starts? Um, I think the, the biggest thing, um, you know, trying to go through on our farm, we do the, the wide range of from specialty pumpkins, jack-o'-lanterns, gourds and things. So thinking about, I would say now we, I have some, you know, seed in hand, but how are we going to proportion um, what we plant? You know, do we need more? Is there a certain specialty or certain area we want to expand? So, you know, we have um, certainly not as many as some, but probably 60 different varieties that, you know, span the size from the Jack B. Little all the way up to some. We do a few of the uh, the larger white ones, like a, a New Moon uh, Polar Bear kind of, you know, that's maybe the 50 to 100 pound range, but lots of things in between, you know, that standard carving or decorating size. So how are we going to proportion you know, what we plant out of those. And especially when it comes to some of the specialty varieties, uh, you know, they can be a little more finicky as far as their productivity. You know, some years, it seems like some of these more, the winter squash specialty types, some years they'll yield a bumper crop and some years you're struggling to get maybe a fruit off of every one or two plants. So it's, all right, we have all these seeds and we know what we, the core, what we want to plant, but how do we balance it? Uh, especially on, we have a pretty small farm. We, uh, you know, mainly just, you know, family operation and help. So I don't, uh -huh. I don't want to just plant, you know, 20 acres just to have a little bit extra. I, I try to try to refine the planning to be, you know, fairly close to what we need and not have tons of excess or, or of course, you know, not have any major shortages. So that's probably one of the main things on my mind, Brad, how about you? 
Um, very similar. I have a small farm, it's just our family farm as well. So uh, what we do is raise for the farm market sales. And we raise about 20% for wholesale sales uh, of about 10 acres. But um, for our farm market, we take uh, just about every variety imaginable, believe it or not. We dump them all together, like all the jack-o'-lantern types together, all the specialties together, put them in a five-gallon bucket, mix them up, and we just plant straight through like that. One, <laughs> the customers love it when it comes to you pick to have all these different varieties uh, all around the field. Plus, with all my boys gone and we being empty nesters, when the old man's out planting by himself, he don't have to jump up and down off the tractor as much. So I just, I just when we were planting every variety separate, uh, you were jumping off the tractor and having to clean the planter out. So doing these composite blends, um, that, we, that's what we do on our farm. Now, for my larger pumpkin growers that I work with with my extension uh, position, I have a, we, we formed a Southern Ohio pumpkin growers a few years ago. Uh -huh. Those would be varietals that they are raising specific for that wholesale market, whether it's uh, Rural King markets, whether it's Meyer, whether it's Walmart. Um, so they'll have a specific size and shape and weight that they will plant. And those varieties are all kept, uh, kept separate within the fields just for they can, when they're out harvesting and binning them up in the fields, they can keep that consistent shape and size. And then they can sticker those according to the, uh, the, uh, the product lookup code that's put on every pumpkin. So uh -huh. yeah, we have two different types, both farms like myself where we need them all for all of our farmers. And then I work with farmers that are just growing for that particular wholesale market. And I, I imagine in both cases, unless you got contracted acreage or something, you it's always a guess as to what, yeah, how do you predict how much you're gonna get? Yeah. <laughs> From I mean, my perspective, yes. The last year was really tough on our family farm. Uh, just like a lot of folks that direct to consumer sales, our demand was up. So we were very short uh, on huh. pumpkins for the home place. And then um, for my wholesale uh, producers, most of those purchase orders have been cut with those companies either back last fall or even January, February is when they cut those purchase orders. So they're pretty well committed uh -huh. to a certain amount of tonnage. So it, you know, if you've been at this a while, you pretty well know what your average yield will be. Yeah. So it's a little easier to manage how much to plant. But for folks like me and me and Nathan's farms, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a flip of the coin, really, what the season is going to be. I think, Brad, probably the biggest thing you would agree with this is that experience. You know, I, there's there's a, there's a certain element I feel like is almost uh, is an art because you kind of know, uh, you know, I, I don't keep, you know, probably as detailed a record as some, but I have a lot of it. You know, you, you have an idea of, of what you've done before and, you know, assuming that you're, you know, building things gradually or you have a fairly stable demand, um, you know, it's it's pretty uh pretty consistent you can kind of work off of that so huh. well well you guys were kind of we were getting at the question of how much how much you're going to get and that kind of leads into how much you're going to plant um so i was going to ask you guys about that next and then then we can talk about actually helping it grow um but as we were starting up we were talking about seeding rates and um and I know Brad, you had and Nathan, you both had some perspectives on where things were in terms of how much seed to put down and maybe where things are going. Um, 
in terms of plant populations. Um, and, and Brad, maybe I'll start with you, and then Nathan, you can can chime in. Yeah, yeah, that'll be a week. I started raising pumpkins with my own money 35 years ago when I started farming with my own money and been back in them days, what do we have? Uh, Howden, Connecticut field. I think you'd go to, to buy your pumpkin seed and maybe some baby pams or, or something. So we had about three, uh, three varieties of pumpkins. Uh, today, we have so many really good breeders. A lot of these commercial seed companies have taken on and concentrated on pumpkin breeding. So my first suggestion is whatever, wherever company you're working with and purchasing those particular hybrids, um, check with your seed source first because they will categorize that type of variety or pumpkin according to uh, sizing and sizing is related to plant spacing and plant population. So mm -hmm. I had mentioned the farmers that already have their... Uh, their big competition, Atlantic giant type pumpkins already in the field, you know, those would be um, the largest category we would have, which would require the most space. So on ones like that, we're looking at, you know, 12 feet minimum, many times more between the rows. And then, you know, anywhere from six to 10 feet uh, between plants in the row. So you're down to five, 600 plants per acre when you're talking those big giant competition type pumpkins. And then when you're going down through the, the jack-o'-lantern categories, um, you know, we have some that are at the little higher end that are in that mid to low 35 to 40 pound range. Those would be uh, a little bit heavier spacing, maybe like a seven and a half to nine foot uh, rows and then a four, maybe four to five foot in the row plant spacing. And then you get down to your 18 to 22 pound pumpkins. You know, those could be, knock down to six to seven and a half foot between rows and maybe four to five feet in the row for a, you know, around 14 to 1600 plant population. Then you get down to your pie pumpkins and your smaller miniature specialties, you know, those can be at a much higher plant population, but three to 4,000, give or take, depending on variety. But unlike 35 years ago, when I was growing Howden, Connecticut, Fia, where you could buy a pound of seed for maybe a dollar. <laughs> we don't have that. I'm exaggerating. But <laughs> so how seed prices now we're paying, again, I'm going to exaggerate about a dollar a seed, but it's not a, <laughs> those competition ones. They're well over a dollar seed on those, but seed prices just in general have really went up. So most of our farmers, as well as on my own farm, we're doing a much better job of planting space planting and, and according to those categories that we're, we're going to be planting those pumpkins um, because we really can't afford to waste seed. Now, there's some instances if we're in a no-till situation, sometimes we have some uh, predation from, you know, mice and voles and so forth. And we could have, you know, you could have upwards of 10, 15, 20% loss. you got to compensate for issues like that when you're determining your plant population. But uh, it's very important today, both from a economic standpoint, as well as all these different varieties we have today to make sure you're, you're following the plant populations uh, that those uh, seed breeders are suggesting. Gotcha. Thank you, Brad. Um, and, and Nathan, we are talking a little bit too. You're talking about what maybe where you've seen your growers at in terms of plant population, how things maybe have changed or what, or what, what decisions do you, do you see your growers making about plant populations? Um, 
I think, you know, for me, a lot of the, um, the plant populations, um, a lot of it's just looking back at, you know, the, the, the pumpkin size, that's probably the, the biggest thing. Um, and I think, you know, Brad, you've hit on the, the same thing that I would, would probably say with that. And that, you know, that size, the size of the pumpkin and plant spacing kind of go correspond hand in hand. There's, there's nuances to that. And a lot of seed companies are doing really good about giving um, thoughts and hints as far as how they want it want those seeds spaced ideally uh, mainly because they know that that has a lot of influence in performance especially regarding size so the tighter you plant those pumpkins in general the smaller that variety might be within its its given um you know size capacity you space them out a little bit those sizes tend to you know increase now that's not you can't take a pie pumpkin and turn it into bill's atlantic giant or anything like that but you can but there is relative, I mean, I've seen pumpkins that would be a 15 pound pumpkin, you squeeze them and tighten them up a little bit and they're about a 12 pound pumpkin, you know, if you get them too thick. Um, so in some cases, you know, for say Brad and I, that may have on a on farm market, that may not be a big deal, but if you're packing out bins of pumpkins and you need a certain count, yeah. um, that can make a huge deal uh, as far as what you're trying to accomplish. So, you know, I think the biggest things, um, yeah, is just keep that in mind. I think a lot of about um, square feet per pumpkin, uh, even whenever you look at that, you know, ranging from say those gourds down to about 15 square feet on up to say large you know jack-o'-lanterns in that 25 to 30 and then even above 30 when you get to some of these larger fruited varieties so and there's some other uh, some resources out there kind of refer to that because every planter and every person has a different planter set up and so you know row widths and that you then you can always calculate your row width versus your you know what your planter how you can space things out within the row and it gives you kind of a, an independent way to look at it um, I think, generally speaking, you know, the, the comments I always hear is the, the more equal you can have. So say, you know, your row within row and between row is kind of equals is probably the most ideal. But, you know, if you have you if you're set up to plant every five feet, say every other row on a on a standard corn planter and you can vary your, your spacing in between, I think that goes a long ways, especially if, especially for most of our, you know, medium to smaller fruited, you know, jack-o'-lanterns on down. Certainly when you get to those, the larger size fruit, um, then, you know, maybe, you know, skipping to, you know, every 10 feet or every seven and a half feet might be a little more uh, advantageous. But no, I think that's um, the, the biggest thing is just looking at that size of the fruit and, you know, some of the, the industry recommendations and trying to balance that to give your uh, the best chance for the ideal performance for that variety. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thanks, guys. Um, we actually had a question come in on Facebook. Um, so you guys have been talking about <clears throat> kind of how much seed to put in the ground, how much area to plant, um, how much seed you need to plant to meet that um, that need for product. Um, this question is about getting them off to a good start growing. Um, it's basically about starter fertilizer. Um, so Nathan, I'll ask you first and I'll ask you, Brad. So Nathan, I know you do some transplanted pumpkins. Mm -hmm. And what do you put in your um, starter fertilizer um, with your transplants? 
So traditionally I've used, um, I use like a triple 20 as a soluble fertilizer in the transplant water. Um, I will say off the top of my head, I want to say it's somewhere around, around like two to four pounds in 55 gallons. That's the size on our transplanter tank. However, uh, I'd probably want to, I would have to ground tooth that at my notes just off the top <laughs> picture sitting, sitting at home on my desk. But that's, that's a pretty good approximation. I have tinkered um, and experimented with the ideas. Could I, how high could I say bump the nitrogen level in that? Could I bump it up as a little bit of a starter, especially, you know, we're transplanting in no-till, which is where in most of our crops, we know in no-till that the starter fertilizer can be a, a good boost huh. because we're not tilling and mineralizing all the nutrients from the soil. Oh. So, so having a concentrated boost with a little bit more, um, interesting, a little higher rate of, of some, especially banded nutrients, you know, especially that transplant water. I mean, you're already going through the field, you're filling the tank. So, so that's something I've been tinkering with, but I don't have, uh, I don't have any findings that I'm, you know, any earth, anything earth shattering yet, but I'm, I've been looking at that as an option, but certainly the, the triple 20 is something I've used. Other, others might go for the, the high, the high P, um, you know, like a 945, 15 or something like that. I, um, I've always been happy with the, uh, with like a, a complete, like a triple 20 or something like that, that's balanced. Uh, the nitrogen is certainly needed. And, um, and so I, while phosphorus is important, I would just soon have a, have an adequate rate of all nutrients. And I've been happy with that. Although, um, certainly, uh, any, any of those commercial starter fertilizers, like a soluble fertilizer, I think would be beneficial, but I think all three, uh, especially, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium are, are good and important things to have to get that plant off to a good kickstart. So, it's interesting about the no-till situation too, and not getting things churning as quick as you would in conventional. Yeah, it's um, and, and that's a whole broader discussion, even from what I've worked with growers as far as you know how long have you been no-tilling and the organic matter and how your soils, you know, kind huh. of been managed and that. Um, the short would be the longer you're in, like say a continuous no-till scenario, the the balance that soil changes with respects to how it can um, the mineralization rate as you build organic matter. Then, but then that you tend to get more consistent nutrients supplied from the soil. But if you're early in no-till, or say it's just you no-till every other year, you're you maybe don't have that same capacity and a lot of that I think we're still trying to understand soil biology and all these other factors that come in that we're we're still trying to figure out how that plays huh. into the no-till but anyhow that's um but that that's kind of how I handle it as far as you know trying to give a good start good start within the um you know with those transplants um through transplant water and now in our case uh the only the only uh, transplants we do are giant competition pumpkins, which we follow the same scenario that Nathan suggested. There, majority of my growers, as well as on on our farm, we direct seed all of uh -huh. our uh, pumpkins with the planters. So um, we'll get them off. You know, pumpkins are a pretty quick crop. You can get them at vine; they'll be vining out within a month. So with the rain events we've been having, we really don't want to put all that nitrogen up front because we could lose so much of it, if not all of it, <clears> under <throat> these big heavy rains that we usually get in June and early part of July. So um, what I do and what most growers do is 
you know, at planting, we'll put two inches down, two inches to the side of the seed furrow with a, a, a pop-up starter, like a 1034-0 um, liquid fertilizer with, uh, you know, about five gallon to the acre as a startup, and then uh, come back in right before vine, right, right if, you, if you know what a pumpkin plant does, it'll grow upwards and then it'll tip over. And right at that tip over stage is when it starts vining out. So somewhere between when it's still standing up and before it really starts tipping over and vining, then we'll come through uh, about three weeks later with a side dress application. And that's where we just put on the rest of the nitrogen in the form of 28 as a side dress application. Uh, whether it's a conventional or no-till, you just have your side dress applicators uh, for, for whatever practice you follow. And uh, we have done, Dr. Bob, Bob for sure, he was one of our horticulture and pumpkin specialists back when I began with Extension. And me and him did some work uh, 25, 28 years ago looking at different nitrogen rates. And some of that research had shown that you can have too much nitrogen on these pumpkins. And I think other folks have replicated that research at other universities. And uh, you get the happy median is about that 100 pounds the acre. Um, you know, some folks may have to be a 110, some might be down to 95. But roughly, I think if you look at the data, that research comes out that that pumpkin plant does pretty good with 100 pounds of uh, actual nitrogen per acre. Uh, anything above that, you get a bunch of vine. Uh, you get maybe a high flush of male bloom over, over female bloom. Uh. But it just seems like if you manage that nitrogen program, you can keep that plant in a reproductive check. If it gets too much nitrogen, then it likes to stay vegetative. And it may even delay some fruit set uh, because it shoots a lot of those male blooms has been our experiences. So huh. um, I don't know, but that, that's about 100 pounds of nitrogen for the season. You give that plant a little bit of shot there at planting as a pop-up because that nitrogen will just sit there until that plant really starts growing anyway. So there's no real reason Unless you don't have, unless you don't have the time and the management to do a side dress application, uh, the research has shown that that plant will uptake that um, nitrogen more efficiently when you come in with a side dress application to put okay. the rest of that nitrogen on. And then, like Nathan said, for our vegetable growers, you know, we're already keeping high high uh, potassium levels anyway and phosphorus levels. But if you're a grain farmer and just doing some uh, pumpkins as a secondary crop or as another supplemental crop, you may need to add a little bit of more uh, phosphorus and potassium to that, uh, either through the startup or to your side dress application, um, since grain fields usually aren't as high a nutrient huh. uh, carryover as we get on vegetable crops. Huh. Interesting. I would add to that a little bit. The, the starter, which is, I think is always great because you're putting that nutrient white where that young plant needs it, especially on pumpkins where you have, you know, you mentioned even some cases, uh, certainly five foot row spacing is one thing, but certainly, you know, even, you know, up to 10 or even more feet per row, do you really need to throw out all those nutrients broadcast? You know, what's going to be getting at it, especially the first month or so of that crop's life? Um, but especially, and we've seen this in field crops as well, especially corn, you know, 
in no-till, especially if you have some cover crop or something, you know, having that starter, just like I mentioned in transplanting, the same thing applies for direct seeding. You know, having that starter there is, is I think, a big help to get that crop off to just a vigorous start. So the other aspect that I've looked at, and uh, I, haven't, I haven't had a chance to actually collect uh, data to back it up, but if you're broadcasting all of your nutrients, especially with our wide row spacing, I think a lot, especially nitrogen, um, predominantly, I think you're feeding an awful lot of weeds early in the season. And if you can hold off, even if you did make a broadcast application, but it was later about, let's say, that vine run period or something where you could still drive through the field, um, you're not feeding all those weeds because, you know, row middles will, will fill in in a matter of just a few weeks once that hits. But you're and, and remember, all those pumpkins have feeder roots all along the vine so they can pick some of that up. Uh, not to say that a side dress isn't still, uh, you know, more abandoned application isn't effective, but certainly feeding those weeds, especially, you know, water hemp, which is and other pig weeds are very common for us. I think most people could agree that at some point they've had issues. They love nitrogen. And, and I've seen strips where, you know, uh, uh, toolbars that come through and you can see marks every 30 inches. You can see these little green spurts in the weeds huh. and they pick that up. So, can you help to manage your weeds? Um, you're not going to maybe change the number of weeds, but the amount of biomass, how tall they grow um, versus with your fertility management. I think there, I think there is an aspect there um, that, that you can manage um, to an extent with the, when you're considering how you apply your nutrients. When it comes to nutrition management too. So not like we need more work to do as pumpkin farmers, but some of my growers, I haven't adopted this yet, though I know it works. Um, some of my growers are actually laying out drip irrigation tape, either with the planter or if they're transplanting on, 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 on a plastic mulch. And then since they're irrigating through drip, they're fertigating through drip. So they not only do a one uh, later application of, of nitrogen, like I mentioned, but they may be spoon feeding according to that growth stage of that plant all season long, right up till a couple of 10 days, two weeks before harvest. So, and then a lot of them are you, and there's some data out there to help you make these decisions um, using petiole sap analysis, where they're actually monitoring the nitrogen content within that plant and then adjusting weekly uh, or thereabouts according to that plant's needs and the plant's stage of development. So you can get as, you can, you can make as much work as you want to do when it comes to nutrition management of your pumpkins. But for my smaller acreage growers that are trying to pump out a lot of production per square feet, they have found out that this uh, precision um, nutrition management is, is paying off for them. It's worth uh. that extra management and that extra testing. And you, you can use something like a handheld nitrogen meter where you squeeze the patio sap from the patio onto the meter and you can get a quick reading that way. But, you know, if you're not uh. going to do it very often, your, your soil testing labs will also run a plant sample for you so you can get a, a, a nitrogen content of that plant uh, real time. Um, but just remember, you got a little lag time between getting it to the lab and getting your results back that way. Interesting. Interesting, guys. Um, well, every time I, I've talked to you guys, I think about, I think I've got six more questions I could ask each of you. Um, but so I wanted to ask um, 
before we um, finish up our with any Q&As that have come in, I wanted to ask you, um, Nathan, you mentioned no-till situations and how fertility might be a little different. And then we kind of talked about weed management. Um, planting time is about the time when, well, that's when you do most of your chemical weed control. So I wanted to ask, I'll ask both you guys um, what, what you've seen be successful. Maybe we can start with you, Nathan, in conventional and no-till situation in terms of of weed control. Um, in- so for me, and uh, you know, I think a lot of the a lot of it all. Of course, it goes back to the weeds that you have. You know, the weed populations. If water hemp or or some other amaranth isn't a problem, then that that changes your your scope. Say versus whether whatever it may be. Um, you know, there's lots of, of great pre-products out there we can use, you know, at planting. Um, so uh, I think some of them uh, for us, uh, we've used, uh, and this is not to be explicit or exclude anyone, but I think dual, uh, dual magnum has been a, a, something that we've had for the last few years. It's been good. Um, certainly strategy is still a staple um, that's out, you know, Sandia uh, and then um we do have a, and I think some other states have a 24C label for reflex and use that in pumpkins. So those are, at least off the top of my head, probably as far as pre-products, probably some of you know the, the things that I would go to. As far as the no-till versus tillage, you know, I think the biggest thing is you want to start clean of weeds. And so whether if no matter your situation, you know, tillage usually does that. Although if for some reason you have tillage and you have a stale seed bed situation that you're planning into, make sure that there's no weeds out there. I don't, um, you know, if, if it's tilled and had a rain on it very long, you know, I would be looking really close because even a, a small seedling weed, a lot of these, um, at least some of these uh, pre-plant herbicides that we use for pre's don't have any activity on emerged weeds, you know, especially dual is a prime example of that. So you, if you had even the smallest emerged weeds that are say only even a quarter inch tall, you won't get a lot of impact. Uh, if, especially I say that stale seed bed is where you see that the same way as if you're in no-till, um, you know, usually including some kind of a, a broad spectrum herbicide, you know, like a, a glyphosate or a paraquat or something, you know, Roundup, Gramoxone. Um, those are probably some of the, the go-to products. And a lot of that just depends on your specific, um, specific weed population and what will be effective. Uh, if you have issues with resistance to, uh, to Roundup on, on problem weeds, then that's where you need to really look at something else because, you know, spraying Roundup on a, say, if you have uh, either be mare's tail or, or water hemp, which are too common, if you have resistance, then it's not going to, you're, those weeds aren't going to die and they're going to be there and they'll be there season long in a no-till situation if you don't do something to manage them, you know, at planting from the get-go. Gotcha. And while we're mentioning, while I'm thinking of it, I would like to mention everybody, um, two publications that our Great Lakes Vegetable Working Group does put out annually. One, when it comes to your variety selection, is the Midwest Vegetable Variety Trial Report. So if you just Google that, it's housed at Purdue. Um, One of our partners on the Great Lakes Vegetable Working Group, uh, uh, Liz Maynard, heads up that. Uh, Dr. Maynard posts that on on the Purdue Vegetable Crops website. So that's a great publication to look at. recent as well as past vegetable variety, pumpkin variety research. 
being done by folks throughout the Midwest. So if you're looking at some new varieties uh, there, uh, Ben, put the, put the uh, link in there. That would be a good place to start. Now, a good place to start. Uh, you always want to, okay, if it worked good at, in Nathan's trial in Illinois and Brad's trial in Ohio and Ben's trial up in Michigan, it may be something that may have some potential for your own farm. So keep that in mind. And then the other one is our Midwest uh, Vegetable Production Guide that many of us author and update annually. And um, within that Midwest Vegetable <laughs> Production Guide is an outlay of the herbicides, fungicides, insecticides that are labeled for, uh, for pumpkins as well. So um, in, in my younger days, I probably had that guide memorized, but as I get older, and even though I do this as a job, I don't trust myself anymore. I still pull open that guide and you never should even trust the guide 100% because like Nathan said, you may see reflex and jump the gun and say, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna spray reflex. A lot of times we just have a 24C label that's just for your state. So always use the guide as a, as a, a basis to start your, your deciding on chemical applications for your pumpkin crop, but always read the label that you have in hand before you make that application, just for you're not going off of the, the label, to, off of your, off the, going against the law off of the label for your particular state. Another thing I'll add to that is that with say with our reflex label it is an indemnified label that you have to go to the manufacturer's website and actually download a supplement you know to and and register to use that use pattern it's not necessarily just an open use pattern for us so so know in your state different states handle it differently but know that there could be other restrictions you know or that you might be able to use reflex but you need to you know have registered and basically you know you have that waiver and that supplement you know in hand or you know as far as you know have it in your records on farm to you know for to legally use that yeah. so that's just another thing to to keep in mind just because you see someone mention it at a meeting as an option make sure you you know go through to do your part in those cases and that does vary state by state but i know that's common in other states as well yeah. But we are very fortunate, unlike 35 years ago when I started growing pumpkins, we do have a pretty good herbicide arsenal for pumpkins today compared to 35 years ago. We just really had nothing 35 years ago, where today we have a pretty good, uh, pretty good doesn't cover all weed species. So if you have cockleburr, most of the herbicides we do have labeled are a little weak on cockleburr on some of our farms where that could be an issue. But uh, um, for the most part, we got a pretty good arsenal of herbicides available for us pumpkin growers today. Um, two questions for you guys that um, come up. One, I so here in Michigan, we also have a 24C for reflex. Um, where do you guys see a place for that? Like what situations is that beneficial versus, um, you know, using something like strategy or, or dual or... So for me, we've used Reflex now. I think we've been in probably this might be year six or so that we've had this label for that. And so I think the biggest place is with the, your pigweed species. Um, I think, you know, it, it really, you know, that with dual um, is a really good combination whenever your, uh, your pigweed, water hemp, uh, palmer amaranth, whichever one you, you have in your neck of the woods, that's probably the, the biggest strong suit 
it really uh, it helps dual out and it gives it just kind of enhances that can that weed control it brings in some other things as well but that's usually by and large that's a, a common problem weed and it i think it it takes you know dual by itself will, will go quite a ways but it just uh, it takes you maybe up that last you know maybe um 10 or 20 percent in control i think maybe even then gives you just a little bit you know longer range of control none of your pre's or even under ideal weather conditions are going to give you control much longer than a month. But if you can, uh, you can extend that out a little bit um, and get a little, you know, say get a, you know, 95% control that first month versus getting 85% control, you know, that extra 10%, that could be enough, you know, enough weeds to, to save a lot on hand labor or other things like that, or, or just, just keep them out of the field even uh, so that's that's kind of my my place and how i see uh reflex fitting in there's some other other things that fits in i personally use reflex and use that that labeled use and have that and on our farm and and been happy with it as a, as a nice addition to our our pre-emergent arsenal oh oh go ahead brad i was gonna say as we're talking herbicides uh, one thing that really has become more recent of an issue is I think a lot, well, maybe not today with the grain prices now going up, but some grain farmers, again, were planting pumpkins as a, another crop for a secondary income. Um, and we found a lot of folks not keeping in mind what herbicides had been applied to those soybean and corn crops up to two or three years prior to planting pumpkins and ran into some issues with that herbicide carryover. So if you have some of these, not too many issues we have, nothing come to mind real quick in terms of standard vegetable herbicides that we would be using that would impact, well, atrazine on sweet corn. Um, so if you do have any, uh, I think the plant back on, on atrazine is at least a year. So if you think about uh, um, some of these herbicide carryovers, you know, you, you got to really go back a year or two because a lot of these grain crop herbicides, corn and soybean, um, they're, they're, you can't plant any specialty crops for upwards to 16, 18 months after that application. So again, we talked about the high price of seed. Uh, you know, we're planting these things so doggone late here, um, though we're getting earlier and earlier every year. I, I just had a grower call. He's planting on the 22nd of May this year because his market wants them a week before Labor Day now. Huh. Um, we always just shop wow. the Labor Day market. But as we get keep getting earlier and earlier, we really need to watch for that herbicide carryover, um, what was applied and what that plant back restriction is for those uh, particular herbicides. So keep that one in mind. Don't want anybody, don't want anybody getting burnt with the high prices we have putting into this crop that you end up uh, losing the crop due to herbicide carryover. I, I can see that, especially if you're swapping ground and renting ground and maybe just happy to have a place to plant them. And yeah. Um, I, there's one last herbicide question I had from, um, had this week I wanted to ask you guys. Um, I know in winter squash, some guys will use some Sandia pre-plant, but it can also be used post-plant. I just wonder where you guys have found that product useful for weed control. Uh, for me, it, it is part of my pre-plant uh, arsenal, my pre-plant mix, as well as a lot of my farmers. I have seen too much injury myself in, in research trials, as well as on grower farms that 
tried using it as a post-emergent. Your timing, the weather, everything just has to be pretty perfect from my experience anyway. So I use, I, I suggest uh, Sandia as a post-emergent. Uh, if you get them planted on time, it's probably not something you want to consider as a post-emergent or a broadleaf herbicide uh, for a second or third, first or second week of July planting because you will get some, uh, some you spray them and then you don't look at them for 10 days to two weeks because the pumpkins look mighty scary once they get hit with, yeah. with a dose of Sandia um, as a post-emergent application. So just don't look at them. And the research has shown Dr. Doug Duhan here in uh, Ohio at Ohio State has done that research. And his research continues to show most times you get a 10 day to two week delay. It stunts that pumpkin plant back. Doesn't, doesn't knock it out if you do it right, but it'll actually put it back in terms of maturity. So you have to keep that in mind. Um, but when it, when it's used, uh, I I've seen pretty good results with the broadleaf weeds that are, that are labeled on Sandia, but I don't know, uh, Nathan, you use that on your farm or. So for me, uh, I've used Sandia um, with some of the, with more use of say reflex and other things. Um, I've even, and mainly I've used it as a pre, a pre-plant as a pre-emergence. Um, I've even toyed with is, is it, am I getting, am I getting my value out of adding it with, with some of these other herbicides when it was dual and we, and then, you know, I dual and Sandia was what I used for a long time. I, you know, that was nice. I feel like it picked up some larger seeded weeds a little bit and help gave some suppression. It wasn't a silver bullet, but I felt like it gave me some options. I too, I shy away from using it post. Um, I think, although it, it does have a label for post broadcast, I think what, uh, what I have sometimes used it for is um, I know it is good on post emergence on cockleburr and also nutsedge. So I've used it kind of more uh, as I wouldn't say a spot treatment, but kind of like a, a kind of in between rows, especially if I had an area where I had pretty dense, maybe an issue with some nutsedge or um, or should some cockleburs come in, you know, I've used it, uh, you know, as more concentrated and trying to some cases even applying it to where I'm not really trying to get a lot of it on the on the plants. Um, uh, and, and I've been happy with that. And you can't, and I have already used it in some post-emergence. And But for me, the biggest thing is, you know, for our water hemp and stuff, most of it is ALS resistant, which is a mode of action. Uh, even Morning Glories, um, I think, I don't remember if Morning Glories is actually on the Sandia label, but both of those, water hemp and Morning Glories, even spraying them when they're only an inch tall, I have seen little, I would say actually almost any, you know, even injury to the weeds, much less, you know, actually, you know, getting any control out of them. So that's where I think there are some areas um, that people do still get some post-emergence activity on some of those weeds. But again, uh, nutsedge and um, and for me, cockleburr are two that I know that I do, you do get some activity out of. Uh, post-emergence. So that that's where I do see it uh, and it can't have a place. Make sure you add the non-ionic surfactant though. If you don't add surfactant with it, it won't, it won't be very impressive at anything post-emergence. Well, guys, I, like I said earlier, I could continue for another 45 minutes. I, I really appreciate you being with us today, Brad and Nathan. Um, thank you for joining us again. It's always, um, I always enjoy listening to you guys, and um, I hope that you listeners have have, have gleaned something useful too. Um, so, 
Nathan and Brad, thank you again, and I hope you have a good rest of your day and a good rest of your week, and thank you for being with us. Um, yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank no you. problem. Happy to do it. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, I'm, I'm thankful for good extension colleagues like you guys. Um, speaking of which, everybody check out a recent article by them. should be coming out in this month's issue of the Vegetable Grower News about um, kind of pre-season pumpkin tips. Um, if you guys are Michigan pesticide applicators, please put your name and email in the chat or Facebook comments. And same thing goes if you are a certified crop advisor. Um, if you do that, I will um, we'll send you an email with the info you need. Um, well, thank you again, guys, and I, I hope you both have a good rest of your week and and as good as you can uh, and as good as you can start to the rest of the growing season. <laughs> yep. Good luck this season, everybody. Yep. Good luck to everybody. Yeah. Take care, everybody. This is NPR, National Pumpkin Radio, and this is a recap of our first and last annual Pumpkin Poetry Slam session. Today, we'll beam you live poetry from the Orange Rind Coffee Shop in Morton, Illinois, where there's been a veritable renaissance in the groovy ancient art of reciting original haikus about yes-do's for growing pumpkins. Walking up to the mic is the winner from this competition, Hayward Miner from Carlock, Illinois. Let's listen in. Santa says, ho, 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 that row next time plan to get weeds when they're small. Dead rye cover crop of all seeds, delighted seeds next time I'll transplant. Make it a double crop of pumpkins after wheat, clean orange spheres of joy. Got so much vigor, don't delay the fruit set, man. Back off on side dress and. Join us next week, same time, same place, glveg.net slash listen, for an interesting discussion with Lori Hoagland from Purdue University all about microbial stimulants in the root zone. What's going on there? Are they worth it? When? How? And more.